We are in a revolution. But it is a revolution in which the side that fires the first shot loses. We will not fire any shots because our weapon is uncommon good sense. Well, hello and welcome to Tractor Time. This is a live edition brought to you by Acres USA, the voice of eco-agriculture. I'm your host, Ben Trollinger, editor of Acres USA magazine. And today we are joined by Jeff Moyer, CEO of the Rodale Institute. And Jeff has a book out from Acres USA, a new book. It's called Roller Crimper No-Till, Advancing No-Till Agriculture, Crops, Soil, and Equipment. For nearly 30 years, Jeff has worked at the Rodale Institute in southeastern Pennsylvania, where he's designed equipment and techniques for organic no-till farming systems. And just last year, he was named CEO of Rodale. In addition, he served as the chairman of the USDA's National Organic Standards Board and was a founding board member of Pennsylvania Certified Organic. Welcome to Tractor Time, Jeff. Thank you, Ben. A real pleasure to be here. And before the, uh, we start the interview, I wanted our audience to know that there will be a brief Q&A session at the end. So please put your questions into the chat and we'll try to block out a few minutes for that at the end of the talk. But the first question I thought we'd begin with is kind of obvious. Um, what is a roller crimper? Someone here at Acres joked it sounded like a dance craze from the 1950s. <laughs> but in reality, it plays a big role in the no-till system that Rodale has pioneered. So tell us about the roller crimper. How does it work? Why is it important to the system? Well, it's not quite as much fun as a rock and roll dance from the 50s, maybe, but it is a unique tool at, that fits into a a production practice and production system that that I've been you know working on for for several decades now. And and this book sort of follows up on my previous book talking about organic no-till. And, and that's really feeds into how I got into this, uh, got involved in this kind of, uh, of an operation. I was looking for ways here at the Institute in the work, research work that I was doing to minimize the amount of tillage that we were putting into organic production systems. Now, the book uh, that we have coming out now, uh, Roller Crimper, really is focused uh, equally as much on with conventional farmers as with organic farmers. So I don't want the listeners to think that this is a system that is solely for organic. And if you're not an organic farmer, it won't be of interest to you because uh, the, the system is really designed to function hand in glove with some basic biological principles that, um, that help us manage weeds. That's where I was coming at it from. Uh, as a side note, we find that the system really works to sequester carbon and improve soil health. So you get a lot of benefits from using a roller crimper. A roller crimper is just a tool. It's, it's nothing more than that. It's a tool that enables us to take advantage of biology to improve soil health and, and manage weeds. Uh, the way we designed it, it is a tool that literally rolls down cover crops and crimps them, hence the name roller crimper, and allows them to stay in place, attached to the ground, not cut, not disked in, no soil disturbance, and facilitates our ability to use modern no-till planter, transplanter, or grain drill technology to get seeds established in the ground. 
We can, in conventional systems, we can reduce or even eliminate the need of, for herbicides in production systems. And on the organic side, we can reduce and at least eliminate within certain years of the crop rotation, the need for tillage. So it's a, it's a win-win for, for everybody. So it's my understanding that you built the first prototype of the roller crimper. Is that true? Well, it is true. I built it in conjunction with a, a neighbor of, of mine back in oh, maybe 2004, something like that. I believe it was when we built the first one. And uh, I'm, not a, uh, I'm not an ag engineer, uh, but like many farmers, I love to tinker with welders and steel and, and do some fabricating. And so I worked on it with my, with my neighbor uh, to fabricate this, this roller. Some of the design principles that we had in mind when we built this were, uh, first, I wanted to be able to put it on the front of the tractor. I wanted to mount it on a front-mounted three-point hitch, or you can, some farmers are, are using front-end loaders uh, to mount the, the uh, roller crimper, uh, as long as you have a detent position on the hydraulic system so that you can get the front end to float, you can do that. Uh, but I wanted to put it on the front of the tractor so that it would free up the back of the tractor for any sort of planter or transplanter or even a grain drill that we wanted to pull behind the tractor, thereby making it a one-pass operation. Uh, simplifies both the, the planting process as well as the ability to roll a cover crop in one direction and plant in the same direction so that you're not planting in the opposite direction that you roll, which could have uh, and, and sometimes does have deleterious effects on your ability to get a stand established. But by locking them together with a tractor in the middle, it became fairly simple to always line everything up because it just follows one after the other. Uh, so that was one of the things we wanted to do was design a tool that would fit on the front of a tractor, although it can be pulled behind a tractor. Uh, it can be uh, pulled behind uh, horses or, uh, or any or oxen or any way you want to pull it. Speed has nothing to do with it. It's, it simply rolls along the ground. You can push it by hand if you have a small unit. Uh, we even have some people using uh, walk behind tractors that have a roller crimper attachment to it. So it, it can function. It's really not the, the tool is simply a tool. It is not the uh, the focus of the of the operation is, and the reason it's successful is really the cover crops. From my perspective, looking at it as a weed management tool, I was sort of looking at what we do in a garden situation. A lot of your listeners may be uh, familiar with the concept of mulching a garden. You know, you take some sort of a, usually plant material, but it could be newspapers or cardboard or anything that you want, and you put a layer of that on the surface of the soil, and weeds don't germinate and grow through it. It's not that the weed seeds aren't there. You've done nothing to kill the weed seeds. They just don't express themselves because they can't see the sun. Now, if I were to tell any of your listeners or when I talk to farmers and I would say, well, go out and mulch uh, 100 acres of soybeans or, uh, you know, 1,000 acres of corn or even a few acres of cabbage, uh, most of the listeners, while they may be polite and continue to listen, they won't do it because it just would take way too much time. To, to accomplish and too many resources. But if we can grow that mulch right in the field and then terminate it in place and use that mulch to suppress weed growth, we can do many things at, at, at that same time. We're suppressing weed growth. Again, it's not that the weed seeds aren't there. They just don't express themselves. Uh, we're also improving soil health. We're helping to manage uh, water and nutrition in the soil 
because we have no there's no opportunity for uh, uh, erosion to take place because the ground is always covered with something green and growing, whether it's wind or water. Um, so we're improving soil health. We're sequestering carbon because we have we've got a green living plant on the surface of the soil, taking advantage of photosynthesis for a longer period of time on our soils. And it also improves the microbial life of the soil, which enhances uh, soil mineralization. So we're getting more fertilizer out of the system as the microbes mineralize the, the resources in the soil, greater microbial life, um, improve soil health and reduce cost, both in terms of the time that we spend in the field operation, as well as time that's our expense that someone may spend on herbicide. Well, before we go too deep into the new book, um, I want to take a step back and I'd love it if you could give us an overview of the Rodale Institute, where it's based, the history of it and the mission. Well, uh, thank you for that opportunity, Ben. I, you know, I never get tired of talking about Rodale Institute and the organization that I've spent my uh, my entire career at. As you mentioned, I've, I was the farm uh, director for about 30, 35 years and then became the executive director. And then shortly after that, four years later, became the, the CEO of, of this organization. Uh, Rodale Institute is a nonprofit uh, 501c3 organization uh, that is really focused on research and education around the the concept that if we improve the health of the soil, so we sort of have healthy soil, we can improve the quality and the health of the food that we're eating, which leads to healthier outcomes in terms of human health and planetary health. Back in 1942, our founder, J.I. Rodale, wrote those words on a blackboard. He simply said, healthy soil equals healthy food equals healthy people, uh, thereby charting the course not only for the Rodale Institute, but for many farmers across the globe as we look at refocusing our energy not so much on the food that we produce, but on the health of the soil that we use to produce that. Uh, we found that if we focus our energy on healthy soil, the food almost takes care of itself, and that then leads to healthy people. So we, we often say that we're a human health organization. Uh, we just focus on the soil and on farming, not on medical intervention or, or health practitioners on the, on the back end when we get sick. Really, right. the concept is, can we eat healthy food, prevent ourselves from getting sick? Can we sequester carbon, improve the, the climate? and thereby improve the, the, the health of the planet at the same time. While we're producing all the food that we need, we think we can. So Rodale Institute officially started in 1947, and we started as a nonprofit because G.I. Rodale, uh, he was not a farmer. He was by, uh, by training a businessman who was financially successful and bought a farm. If you think he was of Jewish descent, if you think back of you know, when he bought his farm in 1940, you think of what was happening in the 1930s in Europe with folks of Jewish descent. He was really concerned that um, farmers were typically not, or Jewish people were not typically farmers. He said, if if this if it happened in Europe, it could happen here. Maybe I need to get a farm and grow my own food so that at least I can eat. At the same time, he was concerned about his own personal health because his father died quite young. His uncles all died young. And he said, well, I don't particularly want to die young. Maybe if I eat better, I could live longer. And so the, all this was sort of gelling in his, in his mind as he thought about buying a farm, bought a farm, knew nothing about agriculture. Well, what's the first step you do? You call an extension agent and say, how do I do this? And of course, extension agents were happy to come out to 
his farm, give him advice on how to grow crops. And it was all about input agriculture. And even back in the 40s, and it made sense to him as a businessman who owned a, 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 an electrical switchgear business. You know, he brought raw material into the factory and sent parts out the factory door. And he said, well, it makes sense. You bring material into the farm and you ship product off the farm and the farm is like a factory. The problem that he found was that the the uh, inputs they were talking about were uh, salt-based fertilizers and synthetic chemicals. And in his mind, thinking that he was focusing on his own personal health and he wanted to eat the food that he was going to produce, he said, how do or what happens, what sort of alchemy takes place in the soil that uh, changes poison and salt into healthy food. How does that take place? What's, what's that What's that process like? And of course, they could not describe that then, and we can't describe it now because that's not what happens. The, the goal of the synthetic inputs that we're using are not to make us healthy. They are to manage particular vectors in the system like weeds or diseases or insects that we might be uh, spraying for or uh, salt-based fertilizer to feed the plant. And he said, well, in the whole conversation that took place, at no point did we talk about the soil. And here's a person who never had a flower pot, and now he had bought back in 1942 a 70-acre farm. And he said, okay, I have 70 acres, and we don't even talk about the soil at all. That seems silly to me. Shouldn't we be talking about that? They said, no, really, that has nothing to do with it. It's all about the inputs. He disagreed and said, well, I'm going to launch off. Uh, we had a very inquisitive mind and, and determine if we could uh, farm without all those inputs that he felt were nasty and poisonous. Uh, and at that point in time, he coined the word organic agriculture as it relates to food production in the United States. And from there, the organic industry has grown. But by the, by the uh, mid-1970s, uh, his son, Robert Rodell, was toying around with um, some concepts that were being lost in the organic mindset as we began to transition the word organic from a disjointed ownership that we had across certifiers around the, the country or even around the world into a USDA legally owned term as it relates to food and fiber production. When we had the, the Organic Food Production Act of 1990, uh, that took a while to get underway. So the conversations were taking place as early as the early 1980s. But in the 1970s already, he, uh, Robert Rodale was concerned with the concepts around climate change and what might be happening uh, to the planet that that agriculture could impact either positively or negatively, depending on, on how we managed it. And he was also concerned with this growing use of the term sustainable. Uh, that word frustrated him. And when you think about it, it is a little bit uh, limiting. Uh, when you'd want to sustain something, it, if you look it up, I mean, it means you want to hold on to what you've got. You want to keep in place a particular system. Uh, Robert Rodale uh, felt like uh, a different word needed to be used that really encompassed the idea of biological systems that improve or can improve depending on how we manage them. Uh, he was an avid bicycle rider. And what he would say is when I ride my bicycle, the only thing that wears out is the bicycle. I actually improve. My health improves as I exercise and use it. If we think of the soil as a system of biology, then if we exercise it, of course, we have to feed it, rest it, water it. But if we exercise it, it will actually grow in strength and it will produce the food we want while it improves. 
uh, was a very novel concept uh, back in the late 1970s, early 1980s. And so he, he coined the word regenerative uh, agriculture and put it in front of the word organic, and we called it regenerative organic agriculture. I think you can see in the marketplace today that many uh, organizations and uh, even food companies are looking at the word regenerative as a marketing tool. They've pretty much marketed the word sustainable to the point where it means everything and it means nothing all at the same time, depending on the context in which it's used. And again, it's a, a weak word to start with. Your listeners may get a chuckle out of this. I've got a friend who's a journalist, uh, Greg Bowman, who asked me a question one time in context of the word sustainable. And he said, if someone asked you how your relationship was with your significant other and you answered sustainable, would they be happy or would they be sad? And I see you smiling, Ben, and I think our listeners would be smiling as well. Uh, it's, it's not a, a word that shows great strength in terms of what we want to accomplish as ag professionals uh, across the country and around the globe. Right. So the word regenerative really spoke to that. Um, as people are gravitating towards that word, we, there is some concern that people will try to weaken that word until, again, it means everything and nothing if it's a marketing term like new, light, improved. And so we continue to link it to the word organic here at Rodale Institute. But whether you're an organic farmer or a conventional farmer, these concepts around regenerating soil health and improving the health of the soil that you're managing are, are very popular right now. I don't think you can go to a conference or a workshop or a webinar and not hear people discussing the idea around soil health and our need to improve that and regenerate our soils if we plan on feeding people for decades, generations literally thousands of years that we have to do. We're not going to do it with the, the systems we have in place today. And we need to think more holistically about that. And that's where the idea of the roller crimper really fit in. How do we reduce tillage if you're an organic farmer? How do we reduce or eliminate pesticides if you're a conventional farmer? And are there biological approaches we can use if we can design some tools and technology that facilitate that? So I'm curious what you, you know, maybe you could describe for our audience today, um, the Rodale campus in Pennsylvania. I mean, there's just sure. a lot of activity, a lot of work going on there. I mean, it's a working farm in a way. Um, talk about what you would see if you were to visit today. Well, clearly I invite all of the listeners to come to our website. Uh, just whatever your search platform is, just type in Rodale Institute. It'll take you right there, but it's www.rodaleinstitute.org. Uh, and you'll get a pretty good vision if you spend a little time on that website of what we do and how we do it. Our main campus, our world headquarters, is located in the small town of Kutztown, Pennsylvania. That's on the eastern side of Pennsylvania, about an hour outside of Philadelphia. We have a 333-acre uh, rolling uh, piece of rolling farmland, uh, which we have a staff of right, right around uh, 50, 55 people working full time in the summer. That number goes up by about 30 as we bring a lot of students and interns onto our campus. We actually have seven campuses now in four different states. So that's our main headquarters. Our, our full staff is somewhere uh, just north of 60 right now, full time people, because we have a um, a branch campus, a regional resource center, we call them. Uh, we have one in Georgia. We have one just south of Atlanta. In fact, we'll be having a, uh, a little um, field day event there uh, next week. So that's in uh, Chattahoochee Hills, Georgia. 
In Ventura, California, on the West Coast, we've got a, a satellite campus, a regional resource center there. We have one in Marion, Iowa, just outside of Cedar Rapids. Uh, that site is about 80 acres. The one in Georgia sits on 300. We're only using about 40 of it at the moment. And in California, where land is quite expensive on the coast, uh, I believe we're, we're farming around five acres. In Iowa, we have uh, access to 80 acres. We've got 10 in research right now. Then we also have a, cam a second campus here in Pennsylvania that is our Pocono campus. We have a regional resource center there working with a, another organization called Pocono Organics, uh, a, a partner of ours that has a 300-acre organic vegetable and hemp farm, and we're doing research and production on that farm. We have a farm campus on the uh, on the grounds of a major hospital here in eastern Pennsylvania, St. Luke's Hospital, where we have a farm to patient plate uh, relationship with, with that hospital. That's a 15 acre farm where the food that's produced on that farm goes directly onto patients plates and into the uh, staff and faculty uh, cafeteria. And then we have, we still own our founders campus, which is located only about 15 miles from here. That's the original farm that GI Rodale bought. Um, because they have donated some of that land to the township to build a park, it is now just under 40 acres, but we own that campus and, and farm that as well. But the main campus here is where most of our research and educational activities take place. All of your listeners are, of course, invited to come out and visit us. If they want to come during this time of the COVID pandemic, we can arrange for uh, social distancing and, and mask wearing. We are open to the public pretty much 24-7. We don't have any gates or fences. We have visitors that come even during during, not during normal business hours and want to tour our, our, our site and our facility. We have uh, a team of research scientists, uh, PhD scientists that work on all of our campuses. I believe here on our main campus, we have five right now because we have an open position they're interviewing for, um, maybe six, there might be six here. Uh, and they all have technicians and, and staff. Uh, our main communications team is here that puts out, builds our website, puts out some of the literature that your listeners may or, or may not have seen or, or, or read. Uh, we have a, a development team that works on generating the funds that we need because our operation uh, doesn't operate for free. Uh, we give all of our information away for free, but it takes funds to do that. So we have a development team uh, of about uh, four people that work on uh, generating resources. And then of course we have an admin team that just administers all of that. We're around a uh, six and a half million dollar a year operation across our campuses. And um, it's, it's it's a lot of fun to do that work and to, and to meet with the folks that I know are listening in here on this on this podcast. Yeah, and so I mean, the work that's being done at these different hubs th throughout the country is. Would you say the goal is really just sort of demonstrating the viability of the organic no-till model? I mean, how are you uh, working with farmers to transition them to this particular model or to you know improve what they're already doing? Yeah, I would say the work on those branch campuses, like our work here, is broader in scope and reach than simply uh, roller crimper technology, although all yeah. of our campuses are using that technology uh, as they work. In California, we're working on a... Uh, 
uh, small small fruit production. We have a, a an industrial hemp operation there in uh, Iowa. It's corn and soybeans, as you might suppose. But we also have a vegetable operation there. As we look at trying to introduce more vegetable production into Iowa, Iowa is a, is a strange state in that it is blessed with tremendous resources for agricultural purposes, yet produces very little food. Uh, so it's challenging to go into the say the, the town of Cedar Rapids and buy produce that was actually grown and produced in or around Cedar Rapids, even though they have the capacity or the capability with the resources they have to do that. And so we we have food deserts in the middle of beautiful, rich farmland. And so we work on that along with corn and soybeans. In Georgia, uh, we're doing some work on um, hog production and um, uh, uh, vegetable production primarily vegetable production, working with small farmers in that region that were traditionally maybe tobacco growers and are now transitioning out of tobacco because the tobacco industry has changed so uh, so drastically and has really displaced some of those smaller landowners. Uh, and how do they grow high, high value crops? We know that the city of Atlanta is growing. It's in the news almost daily now with, with election. And we see the, the demographics of Georgia changing and growing and a re- real demand for organic produce now and we're we're happy to be there working with those landowners uh, and farmers to work you know our goal with these regional resource centers is sort of to take an extension of what we do here at our main campus and make it more convenient for farmers in those regions to participate in a field day where they may not be able to travel to our world headquarters I will say you it's, it's a much richer experience if you can come to our world headquarters but of course not everybody can do that or wants to do that and so can they touch base with us in a more regional environment where they might see uh, production practices or timing of things uh, that are more in tune with what they're going to see on their own home farm. Um, As I mentioned in the introduction, you've been with Rodale for more than more than a minute. Um, I'm interested in knowing more about your background in farming and agriculture. When did that start? Was that since childhood? Well, yeah, I guess I guess you 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 could say that. I mean, we uh, I grew up on a with my brothers and sisters. Grew up on a uh, it wasn't really a farm. We had thirty acres. Uh, my father always worked a full time job. We raised uh, ducks and chickens and goats and uh, you name it. We raised it and we raised enough food to feed. Uh, there was always five of us there, and uh, you know five mouths, they, we ate a lot. And so we gardened and farmed uh, to feed ourselves. I really, as you know, I, I graduated from high school in 1973. So I was a product of the, that early 70s counterculture. And the whole idea of the back to the land movement really resonated with me. I went to school for forestry. When I got out of school, the only work I could find in forestry was in uh, your home state of Colorado. Uh, my girlfriend at the time was not interested in leaving Pennsylvania. Uh, I was not interested in giving up on her. Uh, we've been fortunate. We were married 43 years, so that worked out. And so I stayed on the East Coast. And then we, we uh, even before we were married, we bought a piece of land in Pennsylvania. And we still live there and, and farm there. And that farm has grown under my son's leadership from uh, a relatively small farm. Uh, you know, we had 52 acres. If you count the woodlot, there's another 20 acres of woods there. So we have 70 plus acres of ground there. Uh, now we're farming around 500. Uh, it's a um, 110 cow certified organic dairy. We've always farmed organically, but now it's uh, he's turned uh, our small beef operation into a 
a certified dairy operation. So always been involved in agriculture uh, from the time I was young. I will say that um, as a young boy, I ran away from agriculture as far and fast as I could, like many young people who grew up on a farm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I found great comfort in uh, spending time in the woods. And so that's why I went into forestry. I loved the outdoors, wanted to be connected with that, but uh, thought farming was just too much work. Um, I always tease people and say, be careful what you say you don't like. That's what you will be doing the rest of your life. You know, I, mm-hmm. I think of, you know, my daughter said, I can't wait to get out of Pennsylvania and go somewhere. Uh, she never left Pennsylvania. My son said, I'll never leave Pennsylvania. He went to Wyoming for a while. So you never know. Yeah, um, but it, it all worked out well. And so I've been involved in agriculture, got a job working at Rodale uh, long, long time ago, almost right. almost 45 years now. Oh, wow. OK. I didn't realize it was that long. Total. That's yeah. incredible. Yeah. 1976. Well, it's really 75, but just the last few days of 75. So 1976, okay. I've been here. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Um, so we've, we've talked about the roller crimper, which is sort of the gearhead side <laughs> of, of no-till, but cover crops are really the foundation of this system. And in your decades of experimentation at Rodale, um, what have you learned about cover crops? It seems like there's new science coming out weekly on the benefits of cover crops and building healthy soil. That's really at the heart of what Rodale does. So I would, I would love it if you could kind of give us a master's class on, on cover crops and what you guys have learned over the past several decades. Sure. I'm glad you brought that up because clearly when people ask us what we raise on our farm, uh, my answer is always cover crops. We're a cover crop farm. If we do a good job of raising cover crops, anything else we plant, we have 20 acres of vegetables. We've got an apple orchard. We grow every grain crop you can grow in Pennsylvania, every vegetable crop. But really, we don't focus on that. We focus our energy on cover crops and and soil health because there's no easier way to improve the healthier soil than by using cover crops using you know we even design our systems to expand the windows of opportunity to plant cover crops so we're looking for ways to get more cover crops into the system so we can continuously uh, build and improve our our the health of our soil now there's challenges with cover crops of course and when where and how we use them is critical to their success because not all cover crops are created equal in terms of what they do so learning just as you learn about your cash crops uh, any farmer or grower would uh, or any other animal components we need to learn a lot about the cover crops that we're planting now we operate at a slight disadvantage with cover crops because there's very little breeding work been done with cover crops. So we're literally taking off the shelf plant material and trying to uh, manipulate our production systems to accommodate their peculiarities. Um, one of the cover crops that I talk about a lot that we use in our production systems here in Pennsylvania is a cover crop called hairy vetch. The reason we use hairy vetch is it is a very aggressive nitrogen fixer. We all know as farmers that clovers or alfalfa can fix nitrogen in the soil where it will, in a, in a symbiotic relationship with bacteria, capture it from the atmosphere. If you paid attention at all in junior high chemistry, you would know that around 75% 78% of the air we breathe is actually nitrogen. So nitrogen is not a limiting resource on planet Earth. Uh, the form it's in and where it is uh, can be limiting to plant growth, but we've got this uh, relationship that legumes have with bacteria that can capture it out of the air, store it in the soil where subsequent crops can use it. Okay, that's a piece of biology that we can put to work as farmers. 
So on our farm here at our main campus, aside from a little bit of poultry manure and that we do some grazing now over the last uh, 10 years, but uh, we've been on this farm for 50, uh, the main source of nitrogen on our farm has always been legumes. We haven't bought a bag of fertilizer on this farm in 50 years. Uh, we don't need it. It's not that we don't need nitrogen because clearly we do. I mean, the, the chemistry of plant production continues on and needs a nitrogen to happen, but we deliberately spend a lot of energy trying to capture atmospheric nitrogen and put it in the ground with legumes. Hairy vetch happens to be a cover crop that works really well for that. There are challenges with a cover crop like hairy vetch. And so you have to understand what crop you're using, how it works, where it works in the, in your rotation, what are its pitfalls and downfalls? Cause there's nothing is no system is perfect. Uh, cover crop systems aren't perfect. And we have to understand what the limitations are. For example, hairy vetch can have a lot of hard seed, which means I plant it this year, 95% uh, of the seed grows, but 5% of it lays in the ground and then will act like a weed. That weed will show itself whenever the, uh, the um, rotational system allows it to express itself just like a weed might. Weeds can, seeds can lay on the ground for 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 years before they express themselves. Uh, vetch can have some potential to do that. Uh, for us, the, the vetch weed is especially annoying if it grows and it does whenever we plant wheat. It has the same life cycle as wheat. And so it will germinate in the fall, live through the winter just as winter wheat would. And then in spring, it grows right along with the wheat. And when you harvest the wheat, you harvest the vetch seed. And there you have it, uh, a contaminant that was a cover crop that you planted that is now a little bit annoying in your crop rotation. But by understanding that, we can mitigate some of those problems. For example, we know that if we buy seed in 2020, and don't plant it until 2021 or 2022 and allow it to sit in the bag over the winter, the hard seed disappears. Ah, that's kind of interesting. Uh, nice to know. Um, we would suggest, and, and here's a, a really good opportunity for plant breeders, if there was a sterile vetch variety, hairy vetch variety. So it would fix all the nitrogen it needs, but it would never set seed. That would be a great opportunity for farmers because you'd never have to worry about hard seed. You'd never have to worry about uh, the plant going to seed in the field because it might, it will just flower. And then like any other sterile hybrid, not produce a viable seed. So I think there's opportunities out there in the breeding world to look at these crops because the assumption that these off the shelf materials are the very best we can use are just uh, slim to none. Uh, we use, we try to plant, we understand in biology that grasses and legumes do really well together. Grasses and grasses don't. So if you try to plant corn into a rolled down cover crop of rye, you're going to see poor germination. And that's because the rye emits a cyanide type uh, mm -hmm. chemical into the soil that has an allelopathic effect. That means it, it mitigates the a subsequent grass's ability to germinate and grow. Corn is really a grass. It's a warm season grass. So you've got this cool season grass with a warm season grass and they compete in space and time with each other. And we don't want to do that. So we always plant grass or corn into a legume, but by the same token, we plant legumes like soybeans into a grass. So rye works really well to roll down for soybeans. You can produce a, a tremendous amount of biomass with rye, 
uh, anywhere from 5,000 to 12,000 pounds of, of biomass, two and a half to six tons of uh, biomass that you can produce in the field, which is more than enough plant material to roll down, create that, that mulch effect. And then by using a no-till cedar, grain driller, planter, stick those soybeans into that rye. And now you've got this mulch that prevents small seeded annuals from germinating growing, but large seeded annuals, like a soybean, have enough energy to push through that mulch. And what you'll see is soybeans just grow up through that mulch. You have a nice mulch field, you know, 100 acres, 10 acres, 1,000 acres, whatever it is, mm-hmm. uh, and you don't have any weeds. So we're, we're trying to marry these cover crops up with cash crops. If you're in a vegetable system, you have a lot more options because vegetables are planted early, mid-season, and late. And so you have a lot of different windows of opportunity for getting cover crops in, and you can use things like buckwheat. Uh, Almost any uh, small seeded annual can grow as a cover crop. So anything that you plant as a cover crop can be rolled and terminated as long as it's an annual or a winter annual. You can't kill perennials with a roller. A lot of people will say, well, I've got an old meadow that I would like to turn into an organic uh, cornfield. Could I just roll it and plant corn in there? Well, you can, but it won't work uh, because the roller, it's not magic. It can't kill perennials. If you can't kill it by stomping on it, you're not going to kill it with a roller. All we're trying to do with the roller crimper is take these cover crops, which are now grown to sexual maturity. So you have to let them flower. You know, when there's rye, that means there's pollen in the air. Uh, if it's a, a clover or a legume, it means it's in full bloom. So it's it's sexually, it's, it's mature. It has pollinated. And at that point, it's very easy to terminate it and kill it because it was going to die anyway. And it was going to put all of this energy now into uh, the seed set. And we're going to terminate it at that point. All we're doing is we're laying it over in one direction to make planting easier. And then we're crimping the stem. That's why we call it a roller crimper. It literally uses the soil as an anvil. The blade of the roller comes around and pinches that crop between the anvil of the the soil as an anvil, the plant in the middle and the blade, and it just pinches the stem. That's all it does. If you were to roll over a set of, of, of cover crops and pick them up, you would see that the stem is literally broken, much like if you bent a straw and tried to uh, draw a milkshake through it. Uh, you, you, you couldn't. It would, it, it's kinked and you have to say, hey, can I have a new straw? This one's bent. Uh, it's the exact same theory. If you look at a rye and you were to cut it and take a cross section and look at it, it actually looks like a straw. It is hollow and it sucks nutrients, water and nutrients up from the the ground through that straw. And we're pinching the straw shut and then it stops doing that and dies. So the cover crops are really the star of the show. We're trying to develop with, with roller crimper technology tools that will enhance our ability to use them in the production of annual crops on our farms. That would be a good time to define what we mean um, when we say soil health and also maybe talk about why that's important. Um, as you mentioned, Rodale, uh, Robert Rodale was famous for coining the term regenerative agriculture, um, which is widely adopted now. Um, and, it, and in fact, Rodale has developed a regenerative organic certified sort of system. And I would love for you to walk us through what that means. For example, if, if I'm applying for that certification, what boxes do I need to check before I get that? So what does that mean, um, you know, in terms of the, the, the practices that you're wanting to see on a particular farm in order to get that certification? Well, uh, great, Ben. Thanks for, thanks for asking that question. Um, 
if you first you asked sort of two questions about defining soil health, yeah. which which is a lot harder to do than talking about the regenerative organic certification process, which is more clearly defined. Uh, but but, it, but I think I would point out that you know people have often said that organic is what you're not doing. Uh, regenerative is sort of taking that in a different direction, and saying that's no, right. we're actually looking at outcomes and and results. So that to me, the, the soil health component is what you're you're looking for when you're saying this system is regenerative, this farm is regenerative, this ranch is regenerative, et cetera. So I'm kind of curious about the connection between those two things. Well, there is a strong connection. And um, if you look at our regenerative organic standard, and I invite all the listeners to, again, look on the website if they have the ability to do that for regenerative organic alliance rodale institute worked with some very strong brand partners to create a separate nonprofit to hold the regenerative organic standard so they're the host organization we had to work very closely with the usda uh, to build our standard because we have incorporated the organic component from the USDA. In the United States, the USDA owns the word organic uh, as it pertains to food and fiber. Not, you know, we, some people may have seen organic dry cleaners or organic something else that has nothing to do with it. But when it comes to food and fiber, uh, the word organic is owned by the U.S. Department of Agriculture. If you look overseas, we tend to work more with the iPhone uh international family of standards for trade that doesn't take place within the United States borders. Any organic that comes into the United States borders from overseas or is produced within this country has to adhere to the USDA standard. Uh, if you're regenerative organic, you're not immune or absolved from that. You still have to participate in that standard. We've just incorporated it into the word regenerative as we use it for regenerative organic. So the Regenerative Organic Alliance houses the regenerative, the regenerative Organic Certification Standard, which has three additional pillars to organic, because we believe that organic is really good, as you mentioned, in determining sort of like what you don't do or what you can't use. You can't use synthetic uh, pesticides or salt-based fertilizers, a lot of things that you can't do. But that doesn't really get to the heart of what we're trying to do with the word regenerative, which is rebuild the, the structure. And so we have a very strong soil health pillar within the regenerative organic certification. We also have a very strong animal welfare pillar because we feel that in order to um, satisfy the suite of values that consumers come to the marketplace with, we really need to talk about animal welfare because that's an important concern that consumers have as they look at both organic and regenerative practices in, in, uh, in areas that they want to support in the marketplace. And then the third additional pillar has to do with uh, social justice for farm workers. We feel it's a little disingenuous to say I'm regenerating the health of my soil, but I'm doing it at the expense of farm workers in some way, shape or form within the system. Uh, and that's also an important value that we've noticed in the marketplace for consumers who come to, to the marketplace with that suite of values, uh, areas that are important to them. They say, well, organic's important, so is soil health, and so is the ideas that I don't want to contribute to climate change, whether we believe it's man-made or not. I don't want to contribute to that with the food that I'm purchasing, or I don't want to uh, purchase uh, organic food knowing that it was harvested by labor that may not have been fairly treated uh, when they worked in the field or, or on the farms. A perfect example is a, uh, a partner of ours, uh, 
one of the brands that helped initiate this work was uh, Patagonia, which is a uh, both a clothing brand and a food brand because they have Patagonia provisions and they also have Pat- Patagonia uh, well, clothing wear. And a lot of their clothing uh, is made from organic cotton. Well, there's nothing in the organic certification standards that says that cotton that's organic couldn't be produced in, say, Turkey. I don't want to pick on Turkey, but you know, couldn't be produced in a country like Turkey or where they used uh, young girls to harvest the cotton because they were forbidden to go to school for various reasons. And they had to be out in the field picking cotton. And then somebody's buying an expensive piece of Patagonia outerwear and going, well, wait a minute. I want organic cotton, but I don't want it harvested by uh, school-age girls who are forbidden to go to school, that's not one of my values, and, and it really should not be an organic value. At the same time, we don't want to have organic uh, production that maybe tills the soil too much, and they're actually, they may give lip service to the idea of improving soil health, but in reality, some of the, the strategies that they're implementing on their farms are deleterious to, to soil health, and people don't want to support that either. So, it's all built around this concept of continuous improvement. So if we can all agree that we want to improve the health of our soil, then wherever we start becomes somewhat immaterial is, is how do we move in a positive direction? So our standard has a bronze, silver, and gold, uh, component to to the standard that you can get certified with, Uh, but you need to continuously improve your farm along the way so you can't stay at bronze forever. Bronze is an entry level, and if people look at that, you ask the question, what would farmers expect to to need to collect in terms of data to showcase that they meet the standard? Uh, One of the things that you need to do is uh, look at your soil health program. Uh, the, the system isn't really based on testing, although there is a testing component. Uh, if I step back and think about how we build standards, our standards are built in many different ways. You can have a standard that is built on philosophy. Uh, some of your listeners may be biodynamic. Uh, biodynamic is really focused sort of on a philosophy. Uh, there's there's rich implement, implementation components to that, but there is a ph- philosophical component. Uh, I would argue that many of the best managed farms I've ever been on have been run as biodynamic farms, but the growth is very limited because not everybody wants to buy into that philosophy. You can build a standard built on testing, but in reality, then you've built a standard on cheating. Uh, if it's completely outcome-based based on on, on uh, um testing, then you, because of human nature, it's a race to the bottom. You've no longer created a high bar standard. You've created a standard. And if, if you can meet that standard in a lower cost way, you're incentivized to do that. Uh, that's not what we wanted to do. We wanted to build a high bar standard that incentivizes people to continuously improve and create a reward system within the marketplace to acknowledge that. And so our standard is a little bit different. It's built on, on practices. Now, people would argue that um, practices can be a little challenging to document, but we know, for example, if if uh, if you or me or all of the listeners are smokers and we decide to stop smoking as a group, our lungs will improve. Your lungs may improve faster than mine because I'm older than you or may be compromised in other ways. It doesn't really matter. Every doctor is going to tell you to stop smoking if you want to improve your health. And so we know that's a practice that leads to improved outcomes, different paces, different rates, uh, different soils, different farms. It's somewhat irrelevant as long as we're all moving in the positive direction. And so we have implemented a series of practices that improve soil health. 
So for example, we created a, a menu of, oh, I'm going to say there's 19 or 20 items there and you need to pick six to be bronze. We don't prescribe yeah. which six you pick, but if you, when you get to silver, you have to have 12 out of the 20 or whatever the list is. I, I don't quote me on the exact numbers, but farmers can pick and choose what makes most sense for their particular farm as they work to improve soil health. Now there is a testing component, but you're really testing against yourself because as any uh, anybody in any industry or any hobby that you're doing, uh, you want to know how you're doing. Are you improving? Uh, are things getting better? Am I getting better at what I'm doing? Is Are the practices that I'm superimposing on my farmland actually improving the health of my soil or am I stagnant? Or are they really hurting my soul? Maybe I'm not implementing them correctly. And so you test yourself uh, against yourself, not against a particular standard. So there is no soil health standard that we're looking at. We do work with soil testing labs. Um, you know, so like, uh, you know, there's many of them out there. Or I'll, I'll pick on Cornell because it's on the East Coast here. Uh, Cornell has a soil health test and you send your sample into them and you get a score and your score is 65. And then five years from now, it's 75. Okay, you're doing great. If everybody else is 80, that's okay. You've moved from 65 to 75. That's good. If you were at 65 and now you're 55, hmm, what am I, whatever I'm doing isn't working. I need to go back and rethink this because I'm not accomplishing the goals or the outcomes that I want. And that's really what the standards built on. Right. When it comes to animal welfare or social justice, we've really pretty much um, encapsulated uh, vetted, well-vetted language that's already been out there in that industry and incorporated it into our standard. So that's not a lot of new novel things there. Yeah. Well, thanks for that. Um, so we have time for a few questions. And okay. the first one I'm going to start with is, do crimped cover crops continue to take nutrients from the soil? Are they competing with the new crop? Uh, no, they don't. Uh, because what you're doing is you're, if you think about the cover crops we're working with, I'll pick rye, for example. If you plant rye and you let it go and do absolutely nothing to it, it will grow here in the East Coast. It's going to grow to six or seven feet tall. It's going to pollinate. It's going to set seed. And then it's going to begin to senesce just as wheat does or, or oats or, or barley. It's going to slowly dry out and it's going to die. And then those seeds will fall on the ground and theoretically replant themselves. All we're doing is interrupting that life cycle a little bit early by going out there with the roller crimper as soon as if we roll it before it's sexually mature it will try to stand up and your your listener's question is right on target it will continue to stand up take nutrients and water out of the soil as it wants to reproduce but once it's reproduced uh, or been sexually mature it's pollinated in the case of of rye it no longer continues to grow it's not taking nutrients out of the ground it's taking nutrients out of itself and putting it into the seed and so yeah. it's very easy to terminate it and kill it. So it's no longer taking up water, no longer taking up nutrients and does not compete with the crop. It will compete with the crop in the short term for sunlight, but that's why we're working with large seeded crops. Uh, if you were to go out and roll rye and try to plant carrots, they won't grow. They're small seeded, don't have enough energy to push through that mulch and you're going to have problems, uh, but large seeded annuals, no problem, no competition. Great. Thank you. Um, the next question is, at the moment, it seems that the Institute is fairly USA centric. I am currently doing an internship at the Grand Farm in Austria. Farmer Alfred is experimenting with the roller crimper. And there was some talk about the Rodale Institute starting up a campus in Europe. Any news on this? We want you. 
Well, I happen to know Alfred Grand very well. So uh, to your listener, please say hello to Alfred for me. Uh, you have a, a very fortunate experience to work with a, a great farmer and a very uh, thoughtful philosopher in working with Alfred Grand. Uh, we are very interested in working overseas. We have projects in other countries. Uh, we uh, the only uh, limiting factor stopping us from being in Austria at the moment or Europe is finances. Uh, we're looking for money, uh, continue to look for money uh, with partners there to bring Rodale Institute to Europe. So I'm glad to hear that, at least on your listeners' part, we would be a welcome asset to to Europe. But we are looking globally for partners uh, and, and hope to, over the, in, the, in the not too distant future, expand into other countries. Okay. Um, this question was, I think, from South Carolina and from a 60-year-old there who is, describes themselves as a financially motivated software development project manager. But to paraphrase the question, it's, um, you know, tell me a story about someone who started late and built a successful regenerative agricultural system. Is that possible? Are you seeing a lot of second career people who are coming to the Rodale Institute, for example, and saying, help me get started? We we are. We're seeing a lot of second career people. We're seeing a lot of military ex-military people coming out. We have a veteran training program here. We are we've we've had interns here at our farm. I think the oldest was 62, but that doesn't mean that somebody older than that couldn't intern here uh, or, or intern at or you know our site in Georgia would be much closer to South Carolina or, or go up there and visit them, uh, learn some some skills and tools, and even if you're doing some volunteer work there, uh, go up and learn something that you can put to work on your farm. Uh, uh, it's never too late to start. We have a lot of existing farmers who are at that point in their career where they could either be transitioning out of the farm or really have enough financial security to branch out and are now saying, you know, I've noticed over my long career that uh, the health of my soil has been degrading. And now it's time to think about turning that farmland over to the next generation. And I'd really like to rebuild the health of that soil. So when I turn it over to somebody, I'm, I've, I've improved it and not given it to the next generation in worse condition that I received it. Uh, we see a lot of that. We see a lot of young people who are coming out of university systems uh, who are really energized by the idea around agriculture. I will say that um, statistically, we in this country and for the most part around the world, we have six times as many farmers over the age of 65 as we have under the age of 35. What that says to uh, people who look at statistics is that over the next 20 years, over half of the farmland of the world is going to change management. That is a huge opportunity for all of us to get involved and do something different. We can pick up the reins and do the exact same thing, or there's an opportunity to do something different. Anytime there's a transition, there's an opportunity. And we at Rodale Institute are really focused on that opportunity, whether it's farmers uh, who are enjoying a second career, uh, young people getting in agriculture agriculture and partnering with uh, exiting farmers to to come on board and, and, and take the reins, bring their energy. We need both. We need we need the wisdom of the older generation and the energy of youth uh, to combine to make a real difference in, in how we farm in the future. Well, Jeff, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, Ben, it was my pleasure. Uh, I, I can't believe that the time went by that quickly. Would love to spend no. more time with you and your listeners uh, any chance I get. 
And just a reminder to our audience, you can order Jeff's new book at acresusa.com. The title again is Roller Crimper No-Till, Advancing No-Till Agriculture, Crops, Soil, and Equipment. Thanks for listening to this live edition of Tractor Time. For more interviews like this, visit acresusa.com forward slash Tractor Time. Thanks again for joining us and have a great week.